This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning and welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway. As always, thank you for your time on this Sunday morning. We have two guests with us to talk about media ethics and to help you perhaps get a better feel for uh, how to appropriately look at and evaluate all the blizzard of news coverage and information that comes across your screens every day. We welcome to the microphones Jody Beck, who is a community education volunteer for the Freedom Forum and a University of Nebraska College of Journalism and Mass Communications graduate, and also Jesse Hollis McCarthy, who is the Outreach Coordinator for the Freedom Forum. Good morning and welcome to you both. Glad to have you here. Happy to be here. And it wasn't the college when I was there. It was still a school. School of Journalism under Neil Koppel when you were here at that time. And yes, it uh, was. you were a news editorial major at that point, where now our students are called journalism majors, but it was still news ed at that time, as it was when I was in school back then, too. So I actually majored in advertising and changed oh. my mind as a junior and decided I was more interested in news than advertising. So um I ended up working in news instead of advertising. Well, I got a broadcasting degree and ended up working in advertising as well, and then coming up here to manage our student radio station. So we all take circuitous paths to get to where we are, but we're glad you're with us today. And uh, let's talk about, Jody, you're back on actually on campus here for a couple of days, or were, I should say, by the time this airs, it will have been a couple of days before, to visit with some of our journalism courses about uh, media ethics and uh, how to fight fight fake news. You've had a long professional journalism career uh, most, uh, with scripts and lots of other folks now based in DC currently. What has, has led you to this point where you feel like you really want to get out and work with the community to try to help them sift through what's real from what's fake and uh, deal with some of the journalism ethics issues? When I retired after a career that included working for an afternoon, afternoon newspaper that went out of business, and a television station where I was off camera, but learned a lot about storytelling. Uh, I got my master's degree and then uh, worked for the Scripps Howard Foundation, teaching students to cover news in Washington. And when I retired, I, I felt like I wanted to do something. And I heard that the museum was looking for tour guides. So the museum, sadly, which closed in 2019, uh, was a really wonderful place for me to be as a retired journalist, because I got to talk to people about the First Amendment, how the news business works, and um, you know how important the freedom of the press and freedom of speech and all of the other rights we have in the First Amendment were important to everybody. And over the course of that time, uh, they started having courses and some of us volunteers were taught how to teach those classes. And we taught them at the museum and locally. And um, so we would go out to a library or you know, a school group. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, we started doing them online, which was, an interesting revelation because we got people from all over the place asking for courses. Last week, I taught media ethics to a group of middle school students in Mexico, all English language speakers. And one of the first things I did was do a four, all four of our classes for an Ollie group that was associated with George Mason University, which is just outside Washington and Virginia. And I would have gone there, but so we've, we've taught classes, I think, all over the world and have been able to broaden the reach of people we reach. And I, I, I haven't asked if Zoom will continue to be part of our life, but I suspect even when we can do classes in person, we'll be doing on, on Zoom. So I was just really excited to be able to 
have a little bit of my journalism career follow me in retirement. I think one of the unintended consequences of, of the pandemic and being on Zoom was that we did realize the broadening of our reach and that perhaps even though we are capable of being back face to face, there's something kind of nice about that broadening of the reach that allowed you to remotely go down to Mexico to teach middle school kids. Yeah, and I would love to have been able to teach the classes on campus because it's the, the interpersonal, you know, just the eye contact, you know, somebody's thinking, I've got the answer, but I'm not going to speak. I think you go, you could say, I'd like you to speak. And that's harder to do on Zoom. And that's when I got a, the PowerPoint up, I can't see everybody, but they were the, the first class I taught, they were responsive. It was fighting fake news on the internet and asked good questions. And um, so it was, a, it was a good experience, even though I'd much rather see them in person. A former dean of our college back about 20 years ago had suggested that in an attempt to try to get a, a media literacy course um, made as a, a required course for all majors on campus, that media literacy today was the equivalent of being able to read 200 years ago. And uh, at the time, people sort of scoffed at him. But I think had he made the same case today, he might have had a slightly more receptive college audience. Do you agree, disagree with his analogy? Is that is that overstepping it a little bit? I think there are some school districts who are requiring it in high school. And I think I think it's important for people to understand the media landscape, which used to be simple. Newspaper, radio, evening news. When I was a kid, that's what it was. And now it's really complicated. We have newspapers that are newspapers that are websites that aren't and and so-called newspapers and websites that aren't telling the truth and things spreading like wildfire on Twitter and Facebook. And it, I think, I think it's good for everybody to understand the usefulness of all of these platforms and how they can be misused. So yeah, I think media literacy, high school, college would be great. One thing that that speaks to is uh, I recall a documentary I used to play snippets of when I taught our intro to MassCom course that was produced a uh, couple of decades ago now by, uh, by Linda Ellerby, who I always thought was a wonderful uh, journalist. And my kids grew up watching Nick News with her and how she broached tough concepts, even when she had cancer and insisted on going on camera to show what was happening to her through chemo, because she knew that the little folks watching probably had relatives going through the same thing. But she talked about the this documentary talked about the growth of the 24 hour cable news channels. It was called Feeding the Beast, which was a great title for the documentary. But she talked back then about how 24 hour news cycle, you got to fill that 24 hours somehow compared to the nightly half hour newscast from the networks that I grew up watching. And that was long before we got into the social media era, which is literally nonstop 24 hours a day. So. Has this ratcheted up the concerns we should have about sifting through what's fake from what's real? I think so. And, and I think you have to add to that, although we have more channels and more outlets, the, the traditional outlets, your local newspaper may be suffering because its ownership is no longer local and, and they're shrinking budgets. And so one of the questions I got from a student was, how do we how do we have trust? And I said, support your local newspaper. Most people trust their local news outlet the best. And, and you know, I was in a little bit in the feeding the beast when I worked for television. When I went to WRC-TV, the NBC owned and operated station in Washington, we had an hour and a half, an hour and a half of news at night 
and the cut-ins, the five-minute segments on the Today Show. When I left, we did an hour of news before the Today Show. We did the cut-ins on the Today Show. We had a 10 a.m. news show. We had three hours in the afternoons before to seven, and then the traditional half hour at 11 o'clock. Well, that was a lot of abuse to fill, and we didn't necessarily increase the staff as we increased the hours. And, and quality suffers when you have to just completely you know, fill it. Now, there's a lot of repetition on the 24-hour channels, and that's not a bad thing because if you're not watching at 6, maybe you'll see it at 11. But I think there's a lot of pressure on journalists in some places more than others to do stories that might not be the best work that they could have produced or the right, the subject that matters most. It's, it's and you know, television gets accused of um, just covering crime at 11 o'clock. We got accused of that. And we, we tried to be more uh, thoughtful about how we did it, but it wasn't always easy to do that um, in the time allotted. So um, I think it's important for people to realize what, what it is they're watching and how they can use it and or disregard what's not important to them. So when you hear of newsrooms where there are um, electronic scoreboards basically posted as to how many people's stories are getting how many likes and clicks and uh, and, and that that the, the reporters are mindful of where their stories fall. And if you're covering the city council meeting, maybe you're not getting as many retweets and clicks and likes as, as somebody who's covering uh, Britney Spears conservatorship having been uh, eliminated. Is, is that... A, a concern uh, for reporters and for editors that we're, we're maybe looking at, at, at metrics that might not be the same as they were 20 years ago? I've seen those scoreboards and um, reporters pay attention and don't pay attention. I think reporters really want the story. I, I have to say back in the late seventies when I was covering local government for the star, I, I was under pressure not to cover meetings. So what I tried to do is figure out what's the story that's coming out of this meeting and try to, Get what I needed from the meeting, then go off and cover the story and trust that I wasn't missing anything important because I had kind of done my homework about what was going to be the best story. But I sometimes I'd be sitting in the meeting or sitting in my little cubicle off, off the meeting room, listening to it on a swap box so I could do other things. And I would hear the thing I got something I got, oh, that's the story. I, I don't have to save the meeting anymore. I can now go do the story. And that will be at least on the front of the metro section, if not on the front page because it's more important and more interesting than anything else they're going to do today. And yes, I'll catch up on the budget or the zoning, but I don't have to do that today because what I heard was the story that I wanted to report. And my editor usually went along with it. Jesse, let me ask you from the perspective of the Freedom Forum itself, uh, how, has, how have you seen interest in your courses expand here over the last few years? And has that caused you to expand the kinds of offerings that you have? Um, yes, really, there's this core idea that as we work with the First Amendment, media literacy is grounded in free expression. And I, a colleague once put it, the most First Amendment thing we can do is teach people how to navigate expression as opposed to tell them how to form their expression. And so with that kind of concept in mind that as Jody so eloquently put is for teaching people what to, you know, to use, to navigate, to think. It, how they want to address this, that means there's growing interest in it and there's growing concern. And so we expanded um, from students into adults with these courses that Jody teaches. How have we seen or have we seen 
a change in the uh, respect for and belief in news media, Jody, in the time that you've worked in the industry? And how do courses like the ones you offer try to combat any of those changing opinions about the, the value and the, the efficacy and the reality of news? I can't, I, I can't pinpoint when the trust in what people often call the mainstream media has begun to go down, but it certainly has. Um, you know, we used to have a motto, I, I read it in the star or, you know, you know, watch it on channel four, therefore you could believe it. And I, I don't know exactly the point at which it began declining, I suppose, with the proliferation of media and some doing a better job than others. Um, I've lost track of what you wanted me to say, but but you know it has gone down, and it's 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 a concern. One of the students asked me today, "How can how can I how can I help people who don't trust what they see reported regain trust?" Which is when I started talking about local news. And uh, one of the courses we teach is media bias, and one of the things we encourage people to do is read read publications they might not agree with. You know, pick five news organizations. Some you always read some. You might read occasionally, and some you know you're going to disagree with, and think about what they're saying, and then talk to your friends and relatives. Why are you mistrustful? You used to trust, um, now you don't. What what happened to you? I don't know that it's necessarily what happened to the media, but people have to figure out if they're reading trustful or watching sources that are trustworthy. But you know, it it can be a one-on-one -on -one conversation more than once. And um, I, I think one of my colleagues taught a class. And, uh, and somebody said, I'm so thankful you said this because I've never heard this before. It really will help me figure out why I believe some things and not others. And this was an adult. And so I think once in a while you can convince someone that they should be mindful of what they're watching is of ethical journalism that presents facts. I mean, opinions are fine, right? As long as they're based on facts, it's when you have an opinion based on nothing or a made up story that you hope will get a lot of clicks and earn you some money. So um, I think sometimes one-on-one -on -one conversations are, are helpful, but slow. I have uh, friends and relatives who will tell me, well, I get all my news from, and then they'll fill in that blank with a pundit or a talk show host or someone along that line. And I've tried on occasions to say, it's good that you read, listen, watch this person's comments, but that's like only reading the op-ed page of the newspaper uh, or listening to the editorial and broadcast. And I, we all encourage our students to do just as you do, which is to, as you've just said, rely on multiple sources and force yourself to read things that maybe don't align with your worldview. And I've had people bristle at me and say, well, no, this person knows everything. I don't need to listen to anybody else. And it there are times when I've just sort of said, oh, gee, my coffee's empty. I need to go get more coffee and just have to walk away for a bit because I don't think I'm making much progress. Uh, that happened to me once. I was at a party at a friend's house and just chatting with a woman who I may have met once before. It was right before an election. And um, she said, you know, I don't watch TV or read the newspaper. And there was an election coming up. And I said, well, then how do you decide how to vote? And she said, my daughter tells me things. I said, okay, if your daughter's well-informed, that's great. And I didn't want to say anything else because I didn't want my friend to kick me out of the party. Um, but I thought, okay, um, she's learning something, but is she learning the real facts and news if she's listening to her daughter? Maybe her daughter was a great source. I don't know. One of the things that has really uh, increased the speed of, of information sharing has been the ability to 
uh, forward something, to like something, to click on something and share it with somebody else. And there's been, I noticed that the museum has an entire page on its website about is this story share worthy with tips that people should look at. But uh, how has that changed the the landscape of, of news and content dissemination to be able to just so quickly click something and get it started off to your entire friends group rather than having to write a letter to the editor and put a stamp on it and go to your mailbox and do it the old fashioned way. And before you may even think about it thoroughly, I, I told the students today about a story. Um, a relative of mine had not had a computer and late in life she was given one and she was delighted to be able to go on the internet and email her family. But she sent me and a whole group of people um, an email about some story that I suspected was not fully true. So I checked it out and I emailed her and I said, I know you meant well on this, but I, this is what I found out. And, and to her credit, she emailed back the whole chain and said, I'm afraid I shared the false story with you. Well, that was pretty slow. That took the better part of a day. But if you tweeted something in the morning that you later realized you were sorry about, if you retweet later, hey, I messed up, that may not catch up with the original story. And I think that's part of it. Um, you know, stuff goes around the world before the, you know, the falsehoods go around the world before the, the truth can put its pants on in the morning. I think that's yeah. not the saying, but it's close. And so it can be difficult to correct. It takes a big effort. So let's talk about some best practices for folks listening in this morning. If they are as we all are, I think perhaps victims of, uh, of news fatigue here with this so much stuff pounding on us 24 hours a day. Um, when you would sit down, if someone would come to you and say, Jody, I need help. I'm just, I'm awash in all of this kind of stuff. Help me figure out the best way to sift what's, what's really accurate from what's the, the stuff that's not. They can keep listening to stations like KRNU. They can subscribe to the local newspaper. I don't know if there are any weeklies or you know, giveaways, neighborhood news outlets left in Lincoln, but any sort of local news you can get. And then um, sample national outlets and find one that you think is, is doing a good job at covering the news. I mean, it takes work. It's not easy to stay informed. It, you, I love Twitter. I don't post a lot. I mostly post, post about scooters that have fallen over on sidewalks to impede pedestrians. But I sometimes tweet about news and other things, but I'm pretty mindful about what I put out there. And I'm fairly mindful about who I follow so that I'm getting good information. I'm, I think it's, it's an experiment for some people to, to look and see, well, this person is pretty entertaining uh, on either side of the spectrum, but I don't know that they're telling the full truth. So find somebody, it's fine to watch people at the spectrum, but you have a sampling, do, do your homework and I think supporting local news is one of the most important things we can encourage because local newspapers are in trouble, especially in smaller communities where their owners don't necessarily believe in good journalism. They believe in profits. And so they're willing to cut the staff and cut the resources. And I think there are large swaths of the country who no longer have good local journalism. One of the values in teaching the intro to, to mass comm course, when I've had an opportunity to do that, is to, to make note of the fact that uh, some of this is not new. And I think that the younger generation thinks, oh, we've never, ever had uh, such diverse viewpoints fighting against each other. And uh, my family and I took a trip to San Francisco years ago and visited uh, one of the national cartoon museums and looked at editorial cartoons from the 1800s 
and were stunned at how vicious some of them were and how divisive some of the, the writing was. And it reminded me that uh, that's the history of, of, of our press is that they were, you know, the press was originally run by, by owners of printing presses. And then they just take the opinions that were, that people brought in and paid them to run. And so it's not new, but how well, that's the founding of the country when all, all newspapers were, were run by parties. Just look at the attacks on Jefferson, you know, just go watch Hamilton and you'll talk, you know, or read, or read the book. It, it was vicious. And it was only with the advent of the AP in the 60s and the coverage of the Civil War that the idea of a neutral press took hold. So we're pretty new in that. And it's not wrong to have a, a publication that comes with something from a point of view, but finding someone, some, you know, some news source that is dedicated to truth and reporting it is so important. But it's okay to, to read something that fits your point of view, as long as you're looking at a neutral re- reporting as well. But yeah, our history is short in this, in this business. <laughs> it sure seems to be. Uh, the, the fact, though, that we have so many competing sets of facts these days, seemingly, and everybody's a publisher, everybody who's got uh, any opportunity to get online can, uh, can be a publisher, uh, that seems to ratchet up the concern for not just misinformation, but deliberate disinformation. And I think we're certainly seeing a lot of that with, uh, that's another one of the sidebars of COVID-19 is the, this, the, the blizzard of what's right and what's not right. And well, I know they're scientists, but I've got my best friend's barber thinks that this is what we ought to do. And uh, it makes it tough, I think, for working journalists to try to uh, maintain that level of we're only going to report what we can prove and, and, and hopefully let you decide what uh, for yourself what's best. What advice do you have to journalists who are, are feeling the heat of that? I know it's tough to be in the business these days and journalists have been the subject of attacks, uh, Twitter attacks. Uh, you know, we saw a video in the summer of 2020 of journalists literally being attacked by people on the streets, arrested live on camera for trying to cover something. It it's got to be hard to be out on the streets today. And I sympathize with my friends who are still doing that. Um, you know, the journalists, I know several people who were on Capitol Hill on January 6th who were in fear of their lives, literally. And it's had a strong effect on some of them to think that they are people who are trying to tell people what's happening in a truthful way, as it's truthful way as they can. Now, Obviously, we make mistakes sometime in the heat, sometimes in the heat of the moment. We see something, we report it, and we find out there's a wider story. And it's responsible to go back and say, we didn't tell you the whole story yesterday because we were wrapped up in, in the moment, but here's more of what happened. And I think it's really important for journalists to think about what they've reported and to think, well, should I be doing something else? Should I, should I interview more people? Should I do the long, long take on, on whatever subject it is? But it, I, um, I really sympathize with my fellow journalists who are out in the streets today when they don't know if somebody's going to come up and knock them down while they're doing a live shot. Well, and as we're in this, uh, we're, we're riding along with the reporters. We're watching the sausage get made. The, there's no distance between going out and reporting and then coming back and editing it and putting it. It's, it's, it's live. There's, it, it's really ratcheted up the, the need to try to synthesize what we're seeing and what we're reporting because it's, the, the audience is right there with us. Uh, that seems to also have add, added a layer of complexity and stress that perhaps was not there 20 or 30 years ago. 
it can be exciting. And I'll give you an example from that long ago. I was homesick one day and I'm feeling guilty because it had snowed a quarter inch in Washington, which meant basically the city came to a halt. And there was a train wreck. And the first reports of the train wreck were that uh, um, an Amtrak train had collided with a commuter train. And then live on camera, they called Amtrak and said, no, our train wasn't involved. And then the station got a blizzard of phone calls from people who said, my apartment building overlooks the train tracks and there's definitely an Amtrak train down there. So live on the air, our anchor said, hey, assignment desk, get that Amtrak person back on the phone. And it was like, that was the greatest sausage making I ever saw from my sick bed. And I went in the next day and said, that was so fun because if I was in the office, I wouldn't have, I would have been so immersed in planning the next day's stories and I might not have seen the moment. But to me, that was really great. And it's something you can't always do that. But I will say the anchor we had then, then the late Jim Vance, who died a couple of years ago, was a master at live, at being live and telling what he knew and trying to get stuff done. And it's hard to do that when you're on the street. He was in the studio. It's hard to do that when you're on the street. And um, so um, sausage making is not necessarily what everybody needs to see all the time. Although understanding how it's done is important that we might not report the rumor you give us because we can't confirm it. I would get tips all the time and say, you should report this. And I would say, well, okay, it's interesting. Tell me more. You're the reporter, you figure it out. <laughs> I would say, okay. Having a little help, some facts would help, but um, it's not simple. So, Jesse, for folks uh, listening in who are intrigued by the sausage being made but want to make sure they're not getting uh, some extra ingredients they hadn't planned on, what uh, what can your education website with the Freedom Forum offer to them to help uh, f- help provide some clarity? So... The kind of arc for people who take these public classes that, you know, Jody is like the ones Jody's leading here in Nebraska is we start with media ethics and the foundations of what good journalism is like. And we empower people to think like journalists, which then influences when we go into fake news. If you know how good journalism is made, you can spot the junk out there. And then from there, we go into the arc of checking for bias because that's more nuanced. Now we're holding to that fairness standard. And then finally, we go into tackling the emotionally manipulative stuff like disinformation. So that's the pathway that arc uh, that we lead the classes through to help people have this really robust understanding of not just their role in the media environment, how they can use their expression, but also how they can form a good news diet that doesn't overwhelm them, that they're not just drowning in content all the time. So if you're looking at the newseumed.org website and you are overwhelmed by all the stuff on there, you can mimic our pathway. We have those resources available in that order. You can search media ethics and get started with what good good journalism looks like and move into spotting fake news and then into evaluating for bias and then into spotting manipulative media and propaganda and disinformation and build that for yourself. Or you can fill out the form and book it and have someone wonderful like Jody come talk to you through a Zoom call about it and answer your questions in more depth. I'm reminded of a treasury agent years ago who was uh, on the counterfeit squad and someone asked them how much counterfeit cash they looked at to prepare for the job. And he said, none. I spend all of my time looking at real currency. That way, when I see something that isn't, I spot it right away. And I thought, 
there's an analogy here, right? I mean, find reliable news sources so that when you see, hear, read, are tempted to click on something that doesn't quite smell right, you can say, that just, that's not cutting it with me. You know, the other thing we talk about is the independent fact-checking sites. If you're just reading a newspaper, or seeing something online, and thought, this doesn't seem right to me. There are all these fact-checking sites that have already re-reported that story. Check the names, the dates, the facts, and said, yeah, this is true, or this part is good, this part's not so good, or this is totally bogus. And I, I think uh, we list some of them on, on our website, and it's, it's worth, and there's lots of them, um, it's worth thinking about, well, I don't have to do all the re-reporting and checking, although you can, but somebody else may have already done it for me. But it's not that hard to Google something and, or, you know, to see, oh, does this person really exist? Is this number right? Um, you can usually find those things if you can search online. Jesse, one more time as we uh, wrap this up, would you give us the, uh, the URL and the, the website so folks want to reach out to the Freedom Forum educational programs, they can find them? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find the cumulative essence of our work at freedomforum.org. But if you really want to zoom in on our educational resources or get in touch with us, you want to go to museumed.org. And we have resources on the history of the press. So if you want to go back and see the origins of fair press around the Civil War, we got you covered. And if you want to dive into the modern media landscape or other free expression questions, we've got resources to power individuals and how they wish to shape the expression and ideas that they put out into the world. It's tools to make their expression more robust as they dive into these challenges. I can attest to having spent some time there myself. It's a fabulous website. You and your colleagues are doing great work there. There's a lot to see, and I commend it to any of the folks listening to the program today to go check it out. Uh, thank you both for your time today. Our guests have been uh, Jesse Hollis McCarthy, who is an outreach coordinator for outreach educator, I should say, for the Freedom Forum and an alum of the what was the School of Journalism, now the College of Journalism and Mass Communications, Jody Beck, who is a community education volunteer. Jody, welcome home. Glad to have you back Thank on the you. campus again. My pleasure to talk to you and to be here. This has been Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway. And as always, we thank you for your time this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.